sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do, do evil. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to consider your word, to consider these charges and commands that Peter gives to us and to his audience and to all Christians in all times and all places. We pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would set these words deep into our heart, Lord, that we would remember them and consider them, that you would mold us and shape us and help us to reject sin and evilness and reviling and turn towards you and follow in your path, that we might be led by Christ our Savior all the way throughout our life and how we relate to each other and to the world around us. Pray that you do that now as we consider these words in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned in this passage, Peter is summing up and finishing up this discussion of how Christians relate to and subject themselves to authority. We've looked at government and how we're to view our relationship with earthly institutions of government and society and what the Christian response is. He's talked about um, work, in a sense, dealing with masters and slaves and how we relate to each other in that sphere. He's talked about family, how husbands and wives are to relate to each other, and uh, the particulars of all these different um, relationships we find ourselves in with other people. And now... He's kind of summing it all up and giving a, a very general, very broad, but very applicable and relevant charge to his audience. How, just in general, are we to relate to each other? That idea of subjection to authority and suffering with patience has run throughout all of these passages. And it begins coming to a crescendo in this passage, and especially in the next section, reaches its zenith. Um, and Peter spends his time saying, teaching us how to live. And that's my theme this morning. Very simply, as Christians, we are to value love and truth in our relationships with each other and with the world around us. And so I want to just briefly go through this passage and consider two things. It's just a two-point sermon today. Um, firstly, our relationship to our friends and our relationship to our enemies. Those two categories, our relationship to our friends and our relationship to our enemies and what God wants for us in those. And so firstly, let's look at our relationship to our friends. I use the word friends here, not only talking about those you know, non-family who are close to us the way we typically use it, but really all those who are united with us in our faith. Those who are on our side, so to speak, or ought to be. Those who aren't overtly hostile to us, that we're, by, we're bound to. And these can be friends, but also family and church members, all those of God's house really are bound together. And we see that, Peter singles this out, saying to his audience in verse 8, finally, all of you, all of you reading this, the church, all of you, this is how you are to relate to each other. 
He gives these five commands here. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And it's interesting. If you look at these, uh, these five commands, these five charges parallel and mirror each other. Uh, The first and last deal with our minds. He says, unity of mind and a humble mind. The second and fourth deal with our hearts, having sympathy for each other, being tenderhearted. And the middle kind of sums up all of our dealings with each other, brotherly love. This kind of structure, it's called a a chiasm, where the first and last kind of rhyme has rhyming concepts. The the middle kind of have rhyming concepts. And then there's usually one center idea. Um, it's a very common structure throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, especially in poetic writings. And it's a kind of literary device that the Holy Spirit seems to love to use. And he uses it here through Peter. And when it usually does it, it, it emphasizes the concepts, but also kind of puts emphasis on what's in that middle. Almost like a, a pyramid being built up to a point or a, the cherry on an ice cream sundae. It's the way of using words to highlight something. And Peter is using that here. And so the way I want to take these charges is really in that manner. I want to talk about the first and the last. I want to talk about our minds, how we're to think, how we're to um, dwell on things as Christians with each other. I want to think about our hearts, how we feel for ourselves, for each other, sympathy and tenderhearted. And then lastly, I want to talk about brotherly love in this section. So let's talk about our minds. Peter charges his audience to have unity of mind and a humble mind. Unity of mind is an interesting one. Literally, literally sameness of mind. Of course, the most basic and obvious question when we come to this is, okay, unity of mind with who? Obviously not unity of mind with unbelievers or the wicked. Peter spent a good deal of time already discussing how we're not to think and act in ways similar to those who hate God. That's the testimony of scriptures that we're not supposed to think like unbelievers or be unified in thought with them. Psalm 1 says that blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't listen to their counsel, who thinks differently than what they think is wise. Colossians 3, 2, Paul says to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Um, Paul tells us that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That the way we think is marked by our faith. And so Peter's not talking about here of uh, being unified in mind with unbelievers, though he'll get to how we relate to unbelievers later on. But he's talking about being united in mind with each other. To have unity of mind among God's people. To think the same patterns and to agree on things together, which... Honestly, it's hard to do. We love disagreeing with each other all too often, and we love having disunity of mind. Um, As long as there are people, there will be two sides that disagree with each other on any given issue. And I think that's something we can all agree on. Thank you, thank you. Uh, My other joke there was, um, oh, what was it? You know, you can have 100 people in a room and have 102 opinions. On the same issue. We love disagreeing. It's hard to have unity of mind. And we see it in our world around us all the time. Polarizing and strong disagreement, even to the point of being unable unable to come to terms and even violence at times. We see it in the church. Disagreements on church methodology and theology and 
politics and relational aspects of ministry, it's inevitable that there will be disagreements. And it's hard to have unity of mind. But if it were easy, Peter wouldn't have to command it. He wouldn't have to charge. He wouldn't have to remind us to seek this, to work at it, to do it. Unity requires discipline. And it also requires a a recognition of what we're to be unified around. Peter's already told us that we are to gird up the loins of our mind. That's the last passage I preached on in in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're to gird up the loins of our mind and set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That we're to be unified in mind around our Lord. Paul, speaking on unity in Ephesians 4, says that he urges us, Um, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for building up the body of Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all attain to the unity of of the faith and with the knowledge of the Son of God. So Paul and Peter both say we're to be unified, but that unity we have is centered around, focused on one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And part of my duty, part of Adam's duty, is to build you up and to encourage you in this, to focus on our unity and teach the truth that we are to be unified around. And yes, to work against disunity. And that's part of your job as well. It's not as though we simply ignore our differences and kind of just, you know, kumbaya around the fire. Let's all just, you know, love Jesus and never talk about the disagreements we have. By no means. Peter, the same Peter who's writing these words right here, saying, have unity of mind with each other, And his next letter is going to spend some time strongly condemning and calling out false teachers in the church. And it's ironic that Peter's the one writing this when we know in the book of Acts, uh, Paul telling us, or maybe not in the book of Acts, I can't remember exactly where, but Paul telling us, when Peter came, I had to call him out because he got carried away in his thinking. He started thinking that Gentiles aren't equal members with Jews in the body of Christ, that his way of thinking became disjointed with the truth of the faith. And Paul says, I had to call him out. I had to bring him to account. I had to come to him and bring him back to unity. The call to unity of mind is not a call to ignore our differences, but to deal with them. We have people here in the church who disagree with each other, disagree with me and Adam on lots of issues theologically. Um, one of the things our church, our denomination believes in and we stand, want to stand unified on is infant baptism. And we know there are people here who disagree with that, and that's fine. We love y'all. Uh, but we're convinced that what Scripture teaches, and we want to be unified around that. Does that mean we turn Baptists away at the door and say, you can't be here? No. But it does mean that we're going to try to reach unity of mind on these issues. We're going to have conversations. We're going to sweep them under the rug. We want to talk about these things. And see what the scripture teaches and be unified around that. Thanksgiving is this week and I know surely there's going to be a lot of political conversations, lots of difficult conversations where the easy thing to do 
would be to just sweep it under the rug and play nice. And maybe that might be the wise thing to do in the moment. Um, but we shouldn't pretend to be unified when we're not. Instead, the best thing to do in the right time, in the right place, maybe not at the dinner table. You use your own wisdom and judgment. But lovingly discussing these issues and trying to figure out what Scripture teaches about these things and come to unity in that. And of course, there are more serious issues. There are wolves and false teachers, those who profess faith, and yet, as Peter will say in Second Peter, deny the very master they claim bought them by what they do and say. In apologetics class, we're, we're going through Jesus, and we're going through the atonement and what Jesus actually did on the cross, and how do we defend that. And we're watching a video about prosperity gospel teachers and preachers and the abhorrent and vile teaching they, they spew in the name of Christ. And, you know, when someone looks at you and says, the reason your loved one died is because they didn't have enough faith. Or the reason your loved one is sick is because they haven't tithed enough or done enough. Surely there can be no unity of mind with someone like that, not without tackling those differences and bringing them to the unity of what the scripture teaches. Unity is not simply niceness. It's teaching and building one another up to the true doctrine and teaching of our Savior Christ. And that requires work and difficult conversations and uncomfortable moments. But it's what we're called to do as Christians. Peter says for us we have to strive to do this. That this is something we ought to value and want. Is for all of us to agree on how we think about what we know about God, about what we believe about God and the faith As Paul says in Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God overall. But we're not to attempt to do that in an arrogant or prideful manner. That can be, you know, our temptation. Let me teach you what's right. I know what's best. And that's why the, the corresponding charge to this one, the last charge, Peter says to have a humble mind. To be humble in our thinking. We're firm in our convictions. We're firm in our faith and what we believe about God. But not because we're infallible or because I'm super smart or uh, intelligent. I'm certainly not. Uh, I am very stupid very much of the time. No, the certainty of our faith rests not in our own minds, but again, in God's word. It's not that I'm something. It's not that I am knowledgeable and learned and can know what's right. It's because God tells us what's right. And even, I think of Paul saying, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. But even if even the dumbest among us can understand, can read, can know God's word, surely we can all read and understand and come to unity of mind on things as we deal with these things humbly. And so we remain humble, recognizing our own weakness, but claiming a strength and teaching from God and not ourselves. So firstly, he reminds how we relate to one another. Number one, we seek unity. We want to think alike. We want to, we want all of us to know God, to think through things as Christians. We want to have a humble mind with each other, focusing each other on God's word. And next he turns to how we're to relate to each other emotionally. He says that we are to have sympathy for one another. To recognize each other's hurts and issues and feel for each other. Really understanding 
what's going on. And, and again, another hard command at times. It's easy to feel for ourselves, to know our own hurt and to our own issues. It's less easy to feel for one another. And I like that language of feeling for one another uh, because the corresponding command really bears that ideal out. Again, corresponding one, sympathy, and then a tender heart. He commands us to have a tender heart. I have a, a callus on my thumb, and I've got to where when I'm not paying attention, I start picking at it just absentmindedly. And I can kind of take that skin and peel it back a little bit, and it feels, you know, it feels good. It's like, yeah. But then I get that raw skin underneath. And every touch is amplified, any, any heat or roughness, I feel it. It's, a, it's more painful. I have to be more careful with it because it's tender. If you've had a burn, if you've had an injury, you feel, you know, when you're, that skin, that wound gets tender where even the slightest touch is, oof. Peter says that's what your heart should be like for one another. Everything amplified, not just unfeeling and cold, but being quick to feel, which again is a hard, a hard charge. I know when there's so much going on in the world, when there's so much hurt and pain in your life, it's easy to seal ourselves off in a little callous. It's easy to feel nothing or try to for yourself, even for others. But Peter tells us here, no, tender hearts, hearts that are quick to feel the pain and quick to feel the hurt of yourself and others. So the question, of course, is, do we feel that? Do we have sympathy for one another? Do we see each other's pain? And do we feel that, or even the converse of pain, the po positively, do we feel joy when others are have joy? Do we weep with those who weep, as Christ said, and, and rejoice with those who rejoice? Do we have tender hearts, or are we just kind of here, just sealed off in our own little bubble? If not, consider your own heart. How it might be hardened by God's grace and power. Pray, pick at that callus until you can start to feel. Because as we relate to each other emotionally, part of what God calls us to do is to have sympathy and feel for each other. And lastly, Peter, in the middle, like the climax of a story, he charges his audience to have brotherly love. And this really encapsulates everything he's trying to get across and brings up the image of a, a loving family united around a common Confession, feeling for each other, loving each other. And again, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving uh, this weekend and the meals. My brother Jason uh, makes wonderful dressing that I am really excited for. Uh, and I, I love my brother. I have brotherly love for him for lots of reasons, and that dressing is, is one of them. Uh, I, I, it really is. I'm going to send him this sermon so he can know how much I, how much I love talking about him. But I'm loving that. I, I'm looking forward to that. But... Ultimately, as I mentioned at the start of my sermon, what I'm most looking forward to, I can get dressing, I can get turkey, I can get ham, I can get all this food, but what's most important is the love of a family, the warmth of a home and food and drink and feeling that together. And that's what I love about Thanksgiving, and that's the kind of love Peter encourages us to have for each other, that warm, inviting love to view each other as more than just strangers who see each other on Sunday morning, more than just church members, more than just friends even, but family, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, to hold one another in our hearts as family. And of course, we know that's hard. If it was easy, he wouldn't command it. But God calls us, as he has loved us, to love each other.
that's how we're to view each other, how we relate to each other. Seek unity of mind. Don't neglect our differences, but seek to think in the same patterns humbly, to feel for one another, to feel our, each other's hurts and sorrows and care for one another, and to love as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, as a family. It's a high calling. It's a high charge. That's what Peter calls us to as we consider our relationship to our friends here in the household of God. Now let's talk a little bit about how we're to relate to those outside the church who revile and hold contempt for us. Peter next turns to our relationship to our enemies. And what is to be our response to these people? He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Maybe at times this is, you know, not just enemies, but maybe sometimes those who are supposed to be our friend do this to us as well. But regardless, how are we to re- relate to those who take a hostile approach to us? Peter says, don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. Evil we have a pretty good definition of. This week uh, I was reading a man was out street preaching in Phoenix, Arizona when someone uh, shot him in the head. And that's evil. And that's vile. The preacher is currently in critical condition in the hospital. And so pray for him, if you will. Hans Schmidt, our brother, suffering for preaching the gospel. Obviously, there's legal issues at play. And the just response of a good government is the, the prosecution, capture and prosecution of the criminal. But what is our response to be as Christians? To the abuse and suffering of, of a brother to another Christian, or even ourselves, if that were to be the case? Do we you know, raise up a mob and go raise down the neighborhood hoping to you know, find the killer, indiscriminately killing whoever even might be related? No. Though sinfully, we might want to. We feel righteous and unrighteous anger. Though we might want to take justice into our own hands, God can reminds us that we are not to answer evil with evil. pretty understandable, not too difficult. But one that's a little bit more difficult and more relevant, I think, in our day is reviling. Thankfully, there's not a ton of overt evil persecution of Christians today here, though it is around the world and has been in the past and may be in your future or my future. But there is much reviling around, especially in the Internet age And what is this idea of reviling? What does it mean to revile? Well, Peter gives some insight into that. Uh, Firstly, the psalm tells us, he quotes this psalm as an evidence for what he's saying, and an Old Testament evidence for to back up his point here. And the psalm he quotes says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And so Peter says, hey, don't revile, and then says, don't let your lips speak evil or deceit. Likewise, in 1 Peter three sixteen, a little bit further down in the passage, uh, he says that when you, uh, he's talking about having good behavior as Christians, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. And so Peter seems to see, and the definition bears this out, that reviling is essentially slandering. It's a form of slander mocking people, saying bad things about people, but based on lies, based on things that aren't 
true. Speaking falsely about people to hurt them, to tear them down, to mock them. And Christians in this time uh, time period were regularly spoken falsely about. Rumors flowed that Christians were cannibals because of how we talk about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Christians were claimed to be atheists since they denied the Roman gods. Christians were the source of all sorts of societal issues to many people, even though they weren't. And on and on it went. Falsehood and lies, intentional misunderstandings. And today the reviling continues, so, so the specifics may change. But Peter says we're not to revile those who revile us, which is the natural temptation, right? You're going to talk bad about me? Well, I'll talk bad about you too. That's not where our heart naturally goes. And, but instead, he commands us to speak truthfully and fairly and lovingly of others. This doesn't mean, though, that we can't speak strongly against, uh, against others and use hard words. The same Peter who warns us against reviling also says about false teachers in 1 Peter 2 that they are irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. That they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, or uh, waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So obviously some very strong words he uses there. We'll recall the psalmists in the Psalms, writing prayers of condemnation, destruction against God's enemies, or the prophets who oftentimes engaged in strong language against idolatry, or even the Lord Jesus himself, who calls the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 hypocrites and children of hell, blind fools, a brood of vipers, and more. Um, who called the uh, Jews who questioned his parentage children of the devil. Surely we would never say that Christ fails the, uh, the standards of Scripture. And Peter, in fact, says early in the verse that Christ did not revile. So, no, we have to say what Christ did, what Peter did, and what the prophets did and the psalmist did was not reviling, as is properly understood here. Reviling, again, slander, speaking falsely and untruthfully, unfairly. But what Peter and what Christ and what others do when they speak hard words isn't speaking falsely, it's speaking truthfully. And fairly, the Pharisees really were hypocrites. And they really were like a brood of vipers. False teachers really are waterless springs and accursed children. Peter isn't calling on us here to play nice with evil or wickedness by any means. But he's saying that when we engage those who disagree with us, our enemies, we must not use the tools of our enemy. Satan's a liar and an accuser. Peter says, don't be like him, even when you're dealing with those who are doing that to you. We don't lie, we don't slander, we don't revile in that sense, but we do call people to account. We do tell them the truth about their spiritual state and what they're doing, and they need to hear that. This is not a license to be jerks or rude, but rather a charge to be honest with those who are against us, to truthfully tell them their state and plead with them to come to the Lord. And that is a blessing, as Peter says. You're called to bless, and that is a blessing. I think of the prophet Nathan, right? Coming to King David after King David has killed Uriah, taken Bathsheba, and is in the midst of his sin. And David, uh, Nathan comes to him and truthfully and lovingly, but forcefully, calls him out. You are the man. 
And that was a blessing for David because someone cared enough about him to tell him to his face he had done wrong. He needed to repent and return to the Lord. And likewise, Christ coming to the Pharisees was a blessing to them. Peter going to the the false teachers is a blessing. And that's what we're called to do to those around us. Peter says, don't revile, don't do evil, but instead seek their good. Truthfully, lovingly, forcefully at times, seeking their good, telling them the truth. Not reviling, not making up rumors, nasty lies about them because they're mean to us or lie about us, but rather charging them to look at their sin and repent and come to the Lord for forgiveness and acceptance that we have found as well. And Peter finishes this section by quoting from the Psalms, again, a Psalm of David, proving his point, and says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is a great reminder for us. We will suffer here. Unjustly. This whole section that Peter is writing here is for us. Though it may not be as intense as it has been in times past or in other places in the world, for us, nonetheless, it is here. And this is a fact of our reality. The government will not always protect us or rule in accordance with Christ's commands. Our earthly masters will not always reward what is good and punish what is wicked. Our spouses will not always do what is right and love the Lord and, and honor and love us as they ought. We won't always have unity of mind with each other. We will be prideful in our thinking. We won't always be sympathetic or tender-hearted. We won't always have love for one another. We'll be subject to wicked authority and even reviling at times from our enemies. And in that God teaches us, don't resort to the tactics of Satan, of the wicked, but look to Christ and to his example of truthful rebuke but patient, long-suffering. Again, as Peter says of Christ in 1 Peter 2, 23, a little bit earlier, that when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we have that assurance in this psalm. God sees and hears the righteous. He knows us and knows what we go through. But his face is against the wicked, as the psalm says, and God will repay. And that's my hope. That's our hope. When we hear the evil in this world, when we see evil done, and we want to we want to come back at it. We want to pursue it. We want to do evil things to other people because they've done evil. God says, no. I'll take care of it. I'll deal with it. It's like a, a father telling his children, when someone's been done something to them, been evil to them, been mean to them, saying, I'll, I'll take care of it. Don't, don't, you don't get involved. Let me handle this. They haven't yet arrested the man who shot Hans Schmidt, the street preacher in Phoenix. They're investigating, trying to figure out, and I pray the authorities do get him and find him. But if they don't, I know the Lord knows, and the Lord will repay. The Lord will judge rightly. I've been slandered. I've been called things. You've been slandered and and lied about for being a Christian. But the Lord knows the truth, and he will dispense justice for us. The power to get through unjust suffering is not simply thinking that it doesn't matter. It does. Evil really does matter, and injustice matters. And 
the injustice and reviling that we and other Christians endure is evil to God, and it matters to him. And the way to handle evil and reviling is not just sweeping it under the rug with a fake smile. It's a steadfast trust that the Lord means what he says when he says that justice is mine and I will repay. And ultimately, we hope that through our words and through the working of the Holy Spirit, using our words, that he repays their sin himself with the blood of his son. But if not, we take comfort that every wrong will be accounted for and every sin will be dealt with in the end, that God will make things right. So that's how we can handle this without resorting to evil and reviling ourselves. And so today, brothers and sisters, I charge you, as Peter did, to be united in mind with a humble mind, to recognize, yeah, we're dumb and we're wrong, but God is not. And we ought to be united with what he tells us in his word, to tear away the calluses in our own hearts and be tender-hearted towards one another, to consider each other family, to love one another with brotherly Love And as we interact with our enemies in this world, those who revile and slander us, to refuse to use evil and deceitful weapons in our warfare, but rather to speak lovingly and truthfully, um, but always with an eye to the repentance and blessing of others. And regardless of what happens to us, good or ill, know that God sees and he knows, and the judge of all the earth will do right. So let's pray together as we finish and come before him. Father in heaven, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. This is a high calling as we consider our relationships to one another. You care about how we relate to one another. Uh, You want us to show your love, to show your nature and character through our relations with each other and those around us. And you've not left us in the dark concerning that, but have shown us and told us. And now we ask, as we consider these things, to give us the strength to do it. Lord, by your power... By your Holy Spirit, by the example we have in our Savior Christ, Lord, work to convict us of our sin and encourage us in righteousness. And Lord, may we ever look to you knowing that you see, that you know, and that you are for us and not against us. We pray that you bless us in Christ's name. Amen.